Kia ora tātou. Um, this is Bruce White, um, Scully, and, uh, Scully and Open Access Publishing is the name of our podcast, SOAP, and uh, it's Open Access Week next week, so we have just, um, just finally managed to get to the point where we talk about Open Access Publishing. Uh, and uh, today we're talking about green open access publishing, and with me are... Kia ora koutou, uh, this is Amanda Kuno, um, responsible for managing the repository, uh, institutional repository. Kia ora koutou, this is Catherine Weber, uh, subject librarian. Right, and today, okay. what are we going to talk about? Green open access, yep. but we can't cover off everything, can we? No. no, well, we'll try. We'll try. Oh, we are trying. We'll talk okay. really fast. Well, <laughs> no, we'll go, we'll go for as long as we go. I had thought we were covering off sort of some things that were quite important, that yep. were kind of some key key points, like key events and key, That's right. key people. Very good. Yeah, yeah. We're going to cover that, going to cover the, the broad area, a little bit of the history you'll be pleased to know, mm-hmm. um, and then... Um, Get on. We won't take it right to the present. None of this will go right to the present at the moment mm-hmm. because the present is so different. We will get round to talking about that. But we're on to green open access. Now, um, defining green open access, as people started saying, oh, you can't really define open access, can't really define green open access. Um, green open access, I think we can talk about um, in terms of the two big colours. We'll talk about green open access. The next one will be gold open access. So if you cast your mind back to the fifth, back to the fifth, back to the sixties, then the green and gold, green is kind of the hippies, you know, that's all for free off the track, um, and gold is the the, the nasty big capitalists. <laughs> so today we're talking about the the the, the free for everyone green open access. Vision. So is this also called author self archiving, Bruce? Uh, it has been called author self archiving. Yes. Right. Um, uh, that's that's yeah number of number of terms it was originally originally known by. So um, what, but, but it's, it's the version of open access where the author um, takes uh, some control of their copyright and places their published work, which may or may not have been published in a, in a, a journal, um, in a repository or in some place on the internet where everyone can see it with no barriers of any kind. Yes. Like, obviously, no paywalls. The first thing, you don't have to mm-hmm. pay, yeah. but ideally, you don't have to log in and so on. You just go to Google and you see it, and there it is, and you can read the article. And uh, we'll talk about versions and yes. shades of colours and so on later. But um, green, green OA has its roots, um, again, back in the... Um, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, I'll just quote a little bit um, uh, from Ronald Reagan. We've, 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 had, we've had done Hitler, we've done Robert Maxwell, now I'm going to do Ronald Reagan. I don't know whether Reagan actually said it, but it's attributed to Reagan's White House, issued the National Policy on Transferring Scientific, Technical and Engineering Information in 1985. And they said, quote, it is the policy of this administration that to the extent, to the maximum extent possible, the products of fundamental research remain unrestricted. So that's a pretty ringing statement of what all this is about. Uh, my first um, contact with this was in in the middle of 1994, possibly June or July um, 1994, uh, 
we went to a two-day mini-conference run by Victoria University on the World Wide Web. And <laughs> the World Wide Web, go ahead, laugh, you know, <laughs> why not? It's funny. But the World Wide Web was really new. It was before that we'd been using Gopher and there was an internet. I'd been using the internet unknown to myself um, since the early 80s. But suddenly you had the World Wide Web which allowed you to go onto a browser and there was the one thing and you went onto the browser and you clicked the links and lo and behold, um, stuff appeared. And it was really very exciting. And uh, and when they explained the uses of it on day one, one of the uses of it um, that was uh, going to be really changed the way in which university operates, universities operated, was that they'd be able to put bus timetables um, <laughs> up on the internet so that students wanted to know when the next bus was. Uh, would be able to click and they'd be able to see the bus timetable. And as the timetable changed, this could be changed. So people wouldn't be looking at outdated versions of the bus timetable. And we all went kind of, wow, the bus <laughs> timetable, that's really exciting. And it seemed to be. And then someone said um, you could uh, also look up movie reviews on, on the World Wide Web. And I looked up a couple of movie reviews and, you know, got movie reviews written by um, teenagers, undoubtedly well-known in their own um, <laughs> circle of friends. Uh, but it, it was still uh, an exciting thing to see. And then I probably on day two, John Shipp from the University of Wollongong stood up and he said, this is going to change the way in which we all work. He was the university librarian at University of Wollongong. He said, you know, what's been happening is that uh, you know, libraries buy all of these journals and they're very expensive uh, and authors give copyright to the journals and then the journal sells it to the library and as now they are all being produced electronically on computers. So rather than um, having to send it to a journal and the journal to put it into print and then send it out to the libraries, the authors would just be able to send it to one another. And, and as he described it, it was almost like a system running by email with, with yes. a few bulletin boards that you're going to talk about. Yes. So, you know, you wanted to read somebody's article, you, you emailed them. And, and that over time this would do away with the need for journals because scholars were all, all in a community and yes. this is the way in which it would work. And, you know, I think we all sat there with a little bit of scepticism, but it sounded like a good idea. And what I hadn't realised at the time is that um, this was just before, or sorry, just after, probably like about three or four weeks after, um, Stephen Harnett, who we'll talk about, um, came up with this subversive proposal. And he um, he was at a conference and they had an email going back and forth between people at the conference, and he emailed, them out the subversive proposal for how scholarly publishing could be changed um, by use of the internet. Um, and he started off, had many predictions about the demise of paper publishing, um, but life is short, inevitable still, inevitable still seems a long way off. And then he described what was going to happen. And one of the things he emphasised is that from his view, he, he, was talk, he talked about esoteric literature non-trade, no market, scientific, scholarly publishing. So there's no market for yes. this stuff. Very few people read it. Um, but we're paying a lot to publishers to um, 
uh, to sell it back to us. We've given it to sell it back. So, so it was that argument. So his his um, response to that was public FTP, FTP file transfer protocol. And the original HTML was just a way of sharing files between people. Now we use it to watch TV, but it was <laughs> it was really just a way for people soon to share files with one another. And then they realised, oh, you could do that throughout the world. So public FTP, and what, what would mean was that um, as people had things published, he regarded them as still owning the copyright. would be obviously a huge argument about that, and that they had the right to place it in a public space where anybody could look at it. So as soon as they had it published in the journal, or in fact as soon as they submitted it to the journal, they'd be able to put it in the public FTP space. And when it was finally peer-reviewed and accepted for publication, they would replace the version, the preprint they put there with, with the published version. And uh, he said it doesn't matter how it looks. He referred to this as the patina of paper publishing. What we talked about with Robert Maxwell and so on, mm. that journals look, look and feel nice, that mm. doesn't matter, was Harman's <laughs> view. People just want to read the words. And, the, and if we share them, and he said, if we all do that and just assert our right to do it, um, so this would have to be a collective action by scholars, then the publishers wouldn't have much choice and they would have to adjust around this because the paper sharing would be going on anyway. So that was that was Hanan's subversive proposal and that was the not exactly the birth, but it was the strongest statement of, um, uh, of open access publishing. Maybe I'll add a link to that in the yeah. blog post. Yep, yep, because it's a good one. It's well, it's well, worth, well, worth, well worth reading mm-hmm. and getting a sense of it. And at the time, as I say, he saw it as a very specialised thing yes. because we think of open access as bringing scholarship to the world mm-hmm. and I don't think he was against doing that, but his, he was a, um, a cognitive psychologist. He was Canadian, I think he's of a Hungarian background uh, and he's a very single-minded guy and this was his driving idea. So he's, I have seen him speak, I saw him speak um, in Canada in about 2004, and he's a complete black T-shirt guy. Oh, yeah. You know, the publishers all wear suits, and Harnad looked as if he'd come to set up the sound system. Yes. You know, <laughs> jeans and a black T-shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and a kind of Bob Geldof approach to just do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he was very, um, very forceful, and this this was his big idea, and, and we, we can talk about... Um, you know, the uh, there were various statements and so on that came out. There's the Budapest statement, uh, which we'd better mention and put a link to yep. in, in 2000, was that 2001? Um, but it, it came out of that original insight that really scholars owned their work yes, and they, they owned the right to share it and the publishers sat outside that a bit. And that has been the the, um, the background of green open access. Um, stepping back from that a bit, we had. Um, uh, you're going to talk about bulletin boards and so on. I just want to talk about a little bit about um, versions. About versions, and and go back to the the Harnett's view that versions didn't count. Well, versions counted in terms of whether it was rev- peer reviewed or not. So prior to peer review, it wasn't, it wasn't the finished product. But once it had been peer reviewed, he still regarded the authors as owning that. 
and and owning the right to, to place it anywhere on the web that they wanted to. Um, the publishers, their view is that, that they, own, they owned it. Especially um, once it's been peer-reviewed. Especially once it's been peer-reviewed, yes. Um, it's not quite as simple as I've, I've just explained it. But the version thing, he said, his view was very strong. He said, nobody cares how it looks. You know, it, it's, it's just the words people want to read. They want to see the tables. They want to read the words, and versions don't matter. So we say a little bit about versions because this is important around Green OA. We have really three different states a journal can be in. It is a, a preprint, which is the original article is written by its authors, the original paper. Then it's sent um, to peer, peer review, and it gets peer reviewed. And at that stage, the journal has had some input into it. And by the time it's gone through peer review, it goes back and forth until it is an electronic document, but in the more or less the final state in which it's going to be published. So the words are all the same and so on. And that's called an accepted manuscript. It means that it's, you know, the reviewers have ticked off on it. But it's still probably just going to be a Word document sitting on someone's computer. Then the publishers get hold of it. Um, they put it through a copy editing process, and then it's published, and it appears in volume nine, number three of the journal on pages 806 to 819, and it's got all the branding and so on, and that's the accepted, or sorry, that's the version of record we sometimes call it, or the publisher's version. Yes. Amanda. So they can also be called this, because there's lots of different yeah. terminologies, yeah, and they that's can get right. quite confusing. So you yeah. can also have the author's manuscript or the original manuscript be the preprint, yeah. the accepted manuscript be the postprint. The postprint, yeah. Yeah, and the published right, version, yeah. version of record. Yeah, yeah. preprint and postprint, yeah, that, 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 that. They don't. So they don't. Terms. They don't provide the yeah. actual description of what stage the, yeah. the item is in. Though yeah. an accepted manuscript yeah. kind of tells yeah. you that it's been accepted. Yeah, for, yeah. that's right. Yeah, and it yeah. just hasn't had all the formatting. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Mm. So, um, I just remember a few years ago there was kind of when kind of green open access kind of came about. Um, well, not came about. Came about in my sphere is there was a little bit of argy bargy or disagreement about whether the publishers actually had the right to claim copyright on different versions like but if you're saying yeah. that once that it it goes through to bp reviewed they have rights on the accepted medical book because they've got an investment in it they've yeah. spent some time yeah. and money on yeah. it yeah. that's right i mean their argument is that um that yeah hey we invested in this so this this is part. This is part of our work, you know. Now I don't want to get into the rights and wrongs of that because then, then they send it off to peer review by another bunch of people who don't get paid, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, so exactly. So this, but, but their argument would be is we organise all of this and, yeah. and we arrange for peer review and so on. Um, and of course, this is one of the conditions of publishing with them that you agree mm. um, that the copyright gets transferred. Um, Hunnard's argument was that well, that doesn't really matter either. Um, but of course, you know, if you're a publisher with um, a team of, of lawyers behind yeah. you, uh, then then that that that's that becomes hard to argue with on on legal on moral grounds. You you could perfectly good point on legal grounds. It's a bit more difficult, and that's that's where that's mm. where things have fallen down. But we're going to talk about Sherpa Romeo in a while. But do you, yes. do you want to come in, Catherine? Tell us a bit about, um, about yes, the, well, you the see, beginnings of some of this. As you were saying, people like Harnard really felt it was very important that um, uh, the, the whole, what, what he called uh, skywalking, um, what did he call it? Scholarly, uh, sky writing, sorry, you're getting involved. In. <laughs> 
um, uh, something completely different. Yes, scholarly sky writing, the whole scholarly communication process from the initial conception of a scholar through to uh, liaising informally um, with, with other scholars and then more formally at symposia and conferences, right up towards um, getting what he called the lapidary version, which is the version set in stone that... Um, Wow. We know it's the version of the great. He used the word um, uh, in, in, in one of his 1990s uh, um, publications. It's, it, 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 there's, a, there's a long, long process, and he actually felt that cognitively it was the initial process that was really important. And this is why he set up this bulletin uh, board, um, uh, Cogprints, um, and uh, this was mainly for cognitive science uh, subjects that um, uh, became extremely popular. Um, originally, I think it was um, run uh, by. Do you, do you know Bruce? I think it was. Uh, it's. I think it was. Uh, Southampton. Certainly Southampton okay, took the yeah. software that yeah, Cogprints right. was, was oh, working e on and, and it, it made it into ePrints, e yeah, yeah, yeah. which was the first kind of institutional repository mm -hmm. software. Yeah. Um, so Cogprints then eventually became ePrints and I think the, the guiding institution in all of this was the University of uh, Southampton. Um, anyway, so uh, for those cognitive science subjects, we had uh, the bulletin board uh, Cogprints, and then um, Archive, A-R, capital X, I-V. Uh, what? Just keep going. Uh, all right. How all right. we do for time. Yeah, how... <laughs> I've forgotten to keep time. Okay, we'll, we'll take a breather. All right, we'll we'll take be back a in a moment. Yes. Let's go to a commercial break. Oh.